If you have your Bibles, I, I don't know if everyone does, but if you have them, I invite you to turn to the book of 2 Kings. The book of 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, I just have a few thoughts I'd like to share from you from this chapter uh, and a remarkable story uh, that we have here for us. Uh, first, before I get into that, though, a few weeks ago during our midweek uh, prayer service, I shared a devotional in which I was remarking on this incredible story that came out uh, that was kind of all over the news recently, which were, was revolving around this story of this epidemic on the slopes of Mount Everest. And the epidemic on the slopes of Mount Everest was overcrowding. On the slopes of Mount Everest, there are too many people climbing, trying to reach its peak, which is causing danger and actually it has caused more deaths this year than in the last several years. And in fact, there's been 11 people who have lost their lives because of this overcrowding epidemic on the highest peak in the world. That's the first time there's been that many people who have died since 2015. And the reason why so many people died in 2015 was because of an avalanche. But now, there's too many people trying to climb Mount Everest. And I just was, I, I can't keep, I can't escape this story because it's so fascinating. Because what was once considered such an achievement that if you reached the peak of Mount Everest, you would be knighted by the queen herself is now uh, being reduced to nothing but just an Instagram picture. Or being reduced to nothing but people wanting to do it to say that they've done it. It's overcrowding on the peak of Mount Everest. I can't get over that. <laughs> what's the inspiration for that? What's, what's the motivation behind people wanting to do that? To risk their lives, to try and uh, reach this peak? I'm sure some people have really good, solid motivations that they're, just, they're, they're in it for a certain reason that's good and, and, and respectable. But I think a lot of the times, I think overall, the general nature of this story and this revelation of overcrowding on Mount Everest reveals the nature of the human heart. Which is, the nature of the human heart is we like to do the impossible thing. We like to do the hard thing. We want something to make us appear strong, make us appear successful, make us appear triumphant, make us appear as if we have it all together and that we are better than the other people that are below us. Overcrowding on Mount Everest betrays, I think, what our, our culture worships. We worship heroes. We worship people who do the impossible thing. And so we strive to do the impossible thing so we can be a hero too. We can uh, add another little thing to our, our resume to make us appear as if we are better than everyone else. This is, uh, it reveals our penchant to be our own savior, does it not? We want to do the impossible thing. We want to save ourselves. We don't need someone helping us. We can do it. We can summit the mountain. We can save ourselves. We don't need anyone else's involvement. I think further proof of this is easily gathered just from elsewhere, all walks of life. But most definitely from our passage this morning in 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5 in the first 19 or so verses relates to us this familiar story of the healing of one Naaman. Naaman was a captain in the, uh, under, the, under the king of Syria. 
And we know this story. We know the story that King Naaman uh, is healed of his terrible skin condition. But here this morning, really quickly, I have two quick points I want to make to you this morning about the silliness of some great thing. The silliness of some great thing. Look with me, 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse number 1. Now Naaman, captain of Syria, or excuse me, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. First, quickly, we have the silliness of trying to do the impossible. The silliness of trying to do the impossible. Here we are given uh, Captain Naaman's resume. His resume is an impeccable one, is it not? We're we're told that he is a captain of the host. He's basically the second in command of Syria. And he's a great man, it says. He is an honorable man, it says. It also says he's a mighty man in valor. He's a courageous captain of this host. He's not just a man who sits in the high towers and orders people around. He's a man of valor. He's courageous. He's strong. He's someone many people would look up to. Many people would strive to be. Naaman is the every man's man. His resume was exemplary. But if you look at this very first verse, for all of his impeccable resume and all of his exemplary credentials, it's all negated by one phrase. Look at the last phrase of verse 1. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He had everything going for him. He had success, strength, power, prestige, position, rank, yet he was a leper. He was unclean. He was weak. For all of his might and strength, his weakness was so apparent you could see it from yards away. His weakness was something he couldn't hide. He couldn't hide it. For all of his bravado, for all of his bravery, for all of his sort of uh, strength and might, he couldn't hide the one thing that would keep him down, his skin condition, his leprosy. He could never hide it. I'm sure this troubled Naaman, and I'm sure this was a frustrating thing for Naaman. We are told, though, in verse 2, that Naaman's soldiers, they go to Israel... Look what it says in verse 2. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. They go to Israel. They plunder this land and they bring back some captives. And among them is this little maid. It's translated just a little insignificant young girl. And she happens to be in the service of Naaman's wife. Now, this unknown little girl might seem a throwaway detail, but actually she's the most significant player in this whole story, and she deserves a whole sermon by herself, but that's perhaps for another time. But in verses 3 and 4, this young girl goes to her mistress, and she tells of, the, of, of, the, of how Naaman, her master, could be healed. Look, verse 3. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria... For he would recover him out of his leprosy. I think it's so fascinating that the very person whom she is being captive of is she is seeking healing for. Isn't that remarkable? She is interceding for the very person who took her away from her home and her life and her family. Nevertheless, she intercedes for Naaman. And through a series of events, we find in verse 8 that Naaman is summoned before the house of this prophet Elisha. 
Look at verse 8 of the same chapter. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard this, the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And he comes to Elisha's door, and he has this entourage of companions and consorts with him. He has so many people, he has possessions, and he has all sorts of things to try and impress people with his position. I, no doubt, if you look, look at, quickly at the end of verse 5, and it says, And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. He goes with all of these possessions and horses and chariots and all sorts of things, no doubt to make sure that his status is understood. And I love what happens. Look at verse 10. Notice who comes to the door. He goes to Elisha's house. He's seeking healing. He's told that he will be able to be cured of his leprosy. And look at what happens. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him. <laughs> he goes to this door. Now you have to understand, this is a man who is full of power and prestige and rank. And who comes to meet him? Just a mere butler. <laughs> a servant comes to greet him. And not only does the servant greet him, the servant is the one who gives him the message, gives him the command. Look at verse 10 again. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. The messenger greets him, and the messenger tells him how he can be cured. He's furious. <laughs> He's enraged. Look at verse 11. And Naaman was wroth. He was angry. He was furious. How dare this prophet? How dare he? He doesn't even have the decency to greet me. He doesn't have the decency to welcome me. Does he not know who I am? I'm Naaman. I'm the one who just plundered your land with my soldiers. <laughs> he's offended. He's, he feels perhaps like he's disrespected. And he uh, no doubt feels that way. But not also is he, is he disrespected. But look also again at verse 10. And look, at, look at this remedy. Look at the way he was supposed to be cured. Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Go wash and be clean. Wash yourself in the river, and then you'll be clean. I don't think Naaman is just angered and infuriated at the fact that he was disrespected by this inhospitable host. He was also enraged at sort of the ludicrousy of this healing. <laughs> Look at what he says. Look at verse 11. Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his land over the place and recover the leper. Surely he's going to come out and tell me some incredible thing to do. He's going to bring down some fire from God, or perhaps that will burn up the resume. He will, he, uh, he, will, he will come down with some sort of miraculous incantation, and it's going to be a spectacle for all of the company to see. But he doesn't do that. That's not the command he's given. It's not, uh, pray this amazing incantation and you will be healed. It's go wash. He is frustrated by this antidote for his condition. And so he storms off in a fuming rage because he wasn't given anything complicated to do. 
He wasn't given anything uh, complicated to perform. It was just go, wash, and you will be clean. This sounds terrible to Naaman's ears. It says at the end of verse 12, So he turned and went away in a rage. He went away in a rage. Why? Because Naaman wanted to do the impossible. Naaman wanted to do the hard thing. This was too easy. This was too simple. He wanted something to conquer. And look at, I love the fact that Naaman's own servants call him out for his irrational decision. Look at verse 13. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, this is the important phrase, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. You see what they did there? They call him out for wanting to do something amazing. If they, they come to him and remind him, if, if Elisha had given you something hard to do, wouldn't you have done it? And here, he's given you something easy, and you're walking away. He, uh, think about the logic of the scene. Naaman, a terminal leper, he is going to die, is being told how to be clean, how to be healed, and he's walking away from the healing. <laughs> He's walking away from it. Walking away, still a leper. That's illogical. And his servants call him out on that. And I imagine that his servants just having just puzzled, confused faces. Um, uh, Naaman, Captain, what are you doing? <laughs> this is a really easy thing. I know you don't like the sound of it, but shouldn't you just try it? Shouldn't you just see what happens? <laughs> Let's just see what happens. Better minds prevail. And in verse 14, he stubbornly goes and does what Elisha says to do. Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, that is Elisha. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. He stubbornly comes to his senses and a cleansing is performed. He is completely healed. A miracle and it says the flesh of a little child, a baby's skin. That's how complete his healing is. It's not just that he returns to his perhaps middle-aged skin. He goes and he's clean and he's cleared of all of his skin condition all the way back to when he was a little baby. But before we make that application, I want you to notice too, really quickly... That was the silliness of trying to do the impossible. But here next in the verses 15 through 19, we have the silliness of trying to buy what is yours. Because not only is Naaman dissatisfied with the fact that this healing is too easy. Here in these verses, he's, he's frustrated by the fact that he can't buy it. He's frustrated with its freeness. Look at verse 15. I'm going to read down through verse 19. Because this is... <laughs> This is just incredible. Look at what he does. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servants. Take some money. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused 
And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules' burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto the other gods, but unto the Lord. And this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he, that is Elisha, said unto him, Go in peace. He goes back. He goes back to Elisha's house. He's just been cleansed. He's been restored from all of his illnesses, all of his his terminal diseases. And he goes back and he tries to compensate Elisha for his troubles. (laughs) Thank you for healing me. Here's some money. Let me buy it. Thank you for cleansing me and giving me back my life. Take some money. Take something from me. Let me give you something in return. Let me pay you back. Isn't this just like our hearts? (laughs) He's so resistant to an easy and a free restoration that he tries to renegotiate the terms of his restoration. The terms were, just go and wash and you'll be clean. And he wants to renegotiate them. No, I want to pay for them. Let me have some part in them. Let me try and buy them. I love how Elisha just says, no. No, I'm not going to take it. No, you can't buy this. Go in peace. This healing, you can't pay for it. You can't buy it with anything that you do, Naaman. It's beyond you, Naaman. Again, Naaman is trying to flaunt who he is. He's trying to show off his resume. Look at how powerful I am. Look, I need you, Elisha, to respect my position. But what Elisha was giving him wasn't something to be bought. It was a gift. He was gifting him his life back. And gifts, as we know, they can't be bought. They are only given. And it's in this way that I think that Naaman is very much like you and me, is he not? Naaman is exactly like us. He resisted this healing because he was too easy. It was too free. It was too simple. Uh, He wanted something hard to do. He wanted something to add to his resume. As it says right here in verse 14, he wanted to do some great thing. It is in this way that Naaman's story and the story of the Everest climbers perfectly picture for us our failure to understand the salvation of God. We want to do that great thing. Naaman's efforts to purchase his healing reflect our own attempt to purchase our own salvation, do they not? We are given this gift of life and we go back to God and say, Here, take what I can give you. Let me pay for it. Let me buy it. Let me try and earn it. I want something hard to do, God. Give me something hard to do. And God's words to us are, Just believe. Remember in John 6, 29, he says, This is the work of the Father who has sent me. Believe on him who he has sent. Not perform some such ritual. Not try and pray 1,200 times a day. Not fast 12 hours every single day. Not do some such hard thing. It's just believe. Go wash and you will be clean. clean. Believe in me and you will have life everlasting. 
This is the simple and easy gospel of God. It sounds frustrating to our ears, does it not? Because we want something hard to do. Give us something complicated. And Jesus just says to us, believe. It is finished. I have done this already. I have done the accomplishments on your behalf. You know, I've used this illustration before, I think, in a sermon a couple of months ago. But it, it, trying to earn your salvation, much like Naaman trying to buy his healing, is like trying to pay for a check at a dinner that someone has already gotten. You know, you're going out to a dinner and someone says, I'll take that, I'll take that bill for you. And the person next to you is insisting that they pay for it. Don't you feel kind of offended sometimes if someone does that? Uh, I'm trying to be generous and you're offending my generosity. (laughs) I'm trying to pay for this. Again, amplify that times a billion and you get the uh, offense of us trying to pay for what Jesus has already paid for. What Jesus has already bought with his own blood. And yet here we are, such puny paltry sinners saying, God, take my obedience And Jesus is just saying to us, like Elisha, no, go in peace. Believe in my name. Go in peace. This is your restoration. This is your redemption. You can't renegotiate the terms of your reconciliation. Your reconciliation is founded upon the fact that Jesus stood in your place. You can't renegotiate that. We can't go back in time and try and fix this thing that God has established. This is the crux of the matter. Do you believe in this word? Do you believe, uh, uh, much like in our passage, do you believe in just the simple, easy facts of the healing that Naaman was offered? Do you believe in the simple, easy fact of the gospel that Jesus has taken your sins? Now, do you believe in it? This is the life of a Christian. This is the life of a disciple. Constantly going back and having the, the boldness, the, 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 the ability to believe in this type of gospel. Martin Luther, he says it best, I think. He says, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. To me, that best sums up the Christian life. A daring, a bold confidence in the type of grace that says to us, I've taken it all on me. Believe in my name. Wash and be clean because I have been dipped in the Jordan for you. Don't think it's an accident, by the way, that Naaman is here dipping himself in the Jordan reluctantly. And yet our same Savior, as we learned a couple weeks ago, was also baptized in the same river. And he did so willingly. This is our good news. We don't have to try and accomplish some great thing. Why? Because the great thing was accomplished for us. The great thing has already been finished for us. Jesus has done it. It is finished. This 
is our good news. This is what we rejoice in. This is what we believe. This is what our confidence is. This is why we are here together as a church family. Because the great thing was done for us. Let us pray.